You know, we often rush through our lives in this sort of frantic multitasking sense. And that means that we're not just noticing all the delights, all the good things out there, or just kind of being mindful in our own bodies. Welcome to Teach Me Something New. I'm your host, Britt Morin, and this is a production of iHeartRadio and Brit & Co. All my life, everyone's told me I should focus on being good at one thing. But the truth is, I'm curious about a lot of things. But how do you learn about everything? The answer? Make the world's best experts teach you in less than an hour. So come along with me as we all learn something new. You might think you know what it takes to lead a happier life. More money, a better job, or of course, those Instagram-worthy vacations. But according to our guest today, you're dead wrong. Lori Santos will uncover what it truly takes to lead a happier and more fulfilling life as she has studied the science of happiness and found that many of us do the exact opposite of what will make our lives better. Dr. Lori Santos is a cognitive scientist and professor of psychology at Yale University. She's been a featured TED speaker and has been listed in Popular Science as one of their brilliant 10 young scientists, as well as in Time Magazine as a leading campus celebrity in 2013. Well, Dr. Lori Santos, I'm so excited to talk to you today. I would really like to be happier. Let's just be honest. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all? <laughs> it makes me always wonder, like, are the people that study happiness happy people have they mastered it have they figured out the keys like how would you rate your happiness right now one to ten well definitely my happiness has gone up since i've been studying happiness i'd say you know my happiness today is like you know seven or eight which you know it wasn't always and so i mean i think the great thing about knowing the science is that you end up practicing what you preach you know you have to kind of practice what you preach or else your students will call you out you know i have hundreds of students on yale's campus who take my class who'd be like you know professor santos you're not experiencing gratitude or you know exercising as much as you should. So yeah, once you know what you're supposed to do, it doesn't necessarily make it super easy for you to do it, but you at least know what you're supposed to do and that can help. Happiness is one of those things that seems like so ambiguous. I remember when I was little, someone told me that anytime you drive over a railroad track, you need to touch something metal and make a wish. And I would always wish like, I just want to be happy in life. That was always my wish. And I, I got older and I was like, what does that even mean? So I'm curious, how did you get started studying the science of happiness? Well, for me, it really started when I took on this new role at Yale. I've taught there for over a decade, but in just the last couple of years, I took on this new role where I became a head of college on campus, which is one of these strange roles where faculty live in a dorm with students. I'm supposed to be kind of, you know, a sort of a dorm mother to students, kind of a benevolent aunt to shepherd them through college life. And when I took on the new role, I expected, you know, parties and students to be so happy doing their extracurriculars. But, but what I really saw was the college student mental health crisis up close and personal. You know, so many of my students self-reported that they were feeling depressed or anxious or just kind of fast-forwarding life. I wanted to do something to help them. And as a psychologist, I thought, well, you know, what I do as a professor is I teach classes. So let me develop a new class where I teach students all these strategies that the science gives us about how to feel happier. I kind of slapped this class together at the last minute, expecting, you know, a couple students would take it. You can imagine my surprise when I walked into a classroom of over a thousand students, turned out a quarter of the entire Yale student body was was trying to take the class, which was a little bit of a logistical nightmare, but we sorted it out. But I think it really shows us that students are sort of voting with their feet. They don't like this culture of feeling stressed and anxious, and they really wanted some strategies they could use to do something about that. I was going to say, like, if I were in college, I would for sure try to take your class. And 
And then I was also thinking, as you were talking about that, a quarter of all Yale students were trying to get into your class. The other professors must have been kind of jealous. They were. There <laughs> was like, well, some. There why was, don't they want to be in my class? There was a little bit of hate <laughs> going on, to be totally honest. But one cool thing was that I think because this class was a science class, it really showed me that the students, you know, they didn't want to hear a bunch of platitudes, right? Like they wanted a scientific approach. They wanted what does the evidence say about what I can do to feel better? And that for me was pretty cool. Yeah. And so a lot of your research, I know, compares the cognitive abilities of humans and non-human animals, including primates and canines. So what differences have you found between these humans and non-humans in all of your work? Yeah, it's funny that, you know, that work on kind of this, what we call comparative cognition, kind of comparing the abilities of humans and animals. You know, that was kind of my day job before I started studying happiness. I was really interested in this question of what makes the human mind unique. And, you know, in some ways, it's the kinds of things you expect, right? No other species out there is running a podcast and having a conversation like we are right now. But on the other hand, it's kind of hard to figure out. You know, when you really dive into it, you see examples of things like, you know, what looks like art in other species, what looks like really rich communication, what looks like perspective taking. You know, so many of the things that we think make us special seem seem not to. And and one of the things we were learning is that the, a thing that is common between humans and non-human animals seems to be a lot of the biases we have. We did these studies with monkeys where we gave them uh, kind of a little currency, sort of like their own version of monkey money. And what we found is that when they spend their money, you know, buying different foods and things like that, they make pretty much all the same mistakes mistakes that humans do. And that was one of the connections between the comparative cognition work and the work I was doing on happiness was this idea that we don't always get it right. Our minds lie to us a lot. We have all these biases when it comes to making decisions, whether that be with money or whether that be about thinking about what would make us happier. Can you unpack this experiment? First of all, you gave <laughs> monkeys currency. What is that like a banana? Like, yeah, yeah. We, we really were trying to like do a version of like a monkey economy was the idea. We were doing this, <laughs> these studies with capuchin monkeys who I worked with back in the day. And they're, you know, boisterous little critters. You know, if you give them, say, little metal washers, which is what we did, um, they're kind of curious about them. They'll pick them up. And what we did was we had, you know, two experimenters who are waiting there holding some delicious piece of food food that they were ready to trade with the monkey for that little metal washer. And so monkeys kind of got this pretty quickly, you know, like, oh, I'll just like try to trade, um, handing over their washer for food. And what it looked like was a monkey paying a coin to buy something in a store. So monkeys picked that up pretty quickly. And then what we could do is put monkeys into a bit of a, a market, as it were, you know, so now they'd, you know, come in for testing with their little wallet of coins, you know, they have 10 coins, and they get to choose between different experimenters who are selling different foods at at different prices. We could show the monkeys the price just by giving a different amount of food. So if they're hanging over like, you know, a huge piece of apple would be a really cheap apple for one token. Um, but a teeny, teeny, tiny piece of apple would be, you know, kind of expensive. And we could just look at, you know, how do monkeys budget their their token economy, right? How do they, you know, think about these choices? How do they deal with things like risk and so on? And in pretty much every case, what we found was that the monkeys were smart about their money in the domains that humans are smart about their money. You know, they like shop effectively and go for bargains and things like that. But the monkeys were also irrational with their currency in the same spots that humans were irrational. You know, they overpaid attention to losses um, and then that led them to make bad decisions. Wow. And how, how do you tie comparative cognition, the fact that, you know, we are making the same types of decisions as monkeys with happiness? I think the connection really is just this idea that, you know, we, we all have these strong intuitions about what 
things would make us happier, right? We think if I get, we got rich, we'd be happier. Or maybe if we you know, found the perfect relationship or you know, if I hit the lottery or something like that. But by and large, when you look at people who've had those changes in their lives, people who've become rich or you know, changed their relationship or so on, what you find is that those people aren't as happy as you think. And this really leads to, to an interesting notion. It's this idea that our minds are lying to us when it comes to what makes us happy. We have these strong intuitions. If I just made this change, I'd be happier. But those intuitions seem to be wrong. It's yet another bias that our mind has. And that's not great news, right? It means that we all have these theories about what we should be doing to feel better. But when we act on those theories, we're actually going away from happiness, not towards it. And, you know, that's one right. of the reasons I thought it was so important to teach to teach students about happiness, because if we just had the right theories, then we'd be spending our time in ways that was getting us closer to feeling better rather than further away from it. And I am assuming the wrong theories come from media, social media our parents? Like, does it get, I don't know. Where does it come from? Yeah, it's a great question. I think we don't know. I mean, it's definitely some of the wrong theories come from things like advertising and social media, right? You know, I don't think any of us necessarily need an Instapot to be happier. You know, that's something that we get. Well, from. I do. Yeah. Let's just get that on the table. <laughs> I just got one for my birthday, so it's very salient to me. But, you know, and it seems to have brought me some joy. But again, you know, we, we definitely get some of our ideas about happiness from advertising, right? But I think there's also just, you know, deeper theories we have, right? Or deeper ways that the mind can lead us astray. You know, one of those big ways comes from social comparison, right? A, a bias of our mind is that we don't tend to think of anything that's going on in life in objective terms. You know, so if I asked you, what's a good salary? You know, like, you know, how pretty should you be, right? You know, what's a good number of followers on Instagram? You know, you don't think of those things objectively, you think of them relative. You think, well, you know, I want to have a good salary, you know, relative to other podcasters or I want to have, you know, as many Instagram followers as, I don't know, Beyonce or something. Right. Like we, we tend to think in terms of some reference point and often we pick a reference point that makes us feel bad. <laughs> like we pick ones that like, you know, make we look worse than that person that we're picking the reference point of. And that's kind of this interesting bias that even might come from evolution. Right. You know, our mind just doesn't know what the right amount of stuff is. You know, how much food should I forage for today? You know, how many individuals should I mate with? How many kids should I have? Like, these are biological questions that we don't have good answers to. The answer usually comes from looking at what others are doing and said, well, you know, Joe foraged today and he found 10, you know, I don't know, nuts or something. You know, that must be a good range for me to go for, too. And if I come up short relative to Joe, then maybe I'll feel bad. Well, I think it's interesting you're talking about foraging <laughs> because uh, as much as, you know, we're no longer cave people, food is a basic human need, I would assume that food and being satiated makes us happy. So as we start talking about what are the underlying things that you've discovered in your research that make us happy, are they basic needs or are they these sort of like more extrinsic factors? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. I mean, one one thing we know from happiness is if you don't have the basic needs met, then you're probably not going to feel happy. You know, if you're starving, if you can't put food on the table, if you can't put a roof over your head, you know, those are real things that you need to take care of. You know, if you're in a traumatic situation, right, a traumatic social situation, a traumatic family situation, you have to get that sorted to become happier. But by and large, if you, you know, have enough of financial means to, you know, do the basics, you know, if you're 
you're in a relatively safe social situation, then beyond that, changing our circumstances doesn't really seem to help our happiness in the way we think. You know, we all think, oh, more money or, you know, new stuff or a new car or new relationships, you know, the perfect marriage or something like we think those are the keys. But actually, for the most part, those kinds of circumstantial changes don't work in the way we think. You know, it's not like, you know, putting food on the table for the first time. If you get that extra, you know, $50,000, if you're already earning a middle class salary, turns out the science shows it won't really help your happiness all that much. Yeah, I read something about this. Like there's an actual salary limit that uh, when you go above that, it doesn't really matter. Is it 75000 Yeah, the study, it's worth noting the study was done back in 2009, you know, so sure. inflation, blah, blah, blah. But but the message of that study is if you're currently, or at least in, in 2009, if you were currently earning a $75,000 salary, then even doubling or tripling your salary wouldn't have any effect on your overall well-being. It wouldn't have an effect on your uh, positive emotions. It wouldn't reduce your stress. It wouldn't decrease your negative emotions. It just wouldn't have an effect. And that's like, we just don't believe that. Like most of the people listening right now, if I said, well, you know, how would you feel if I quadrupled your salary? You'd be like, that would make me happier. But for most of the people listening, you know, that might not make you as happy as you think. And that's why, because we are spending it on superfluous things instead of like the basic shelter or food needs we have. Yeah. Unless we're eating like truffles every day. Or yeah, something. yeah. Like all the avocado toast or whatever. Yeah. No, but it's, a, I mean, it's for a couple reasons. One is that you know, the amount of salary that makes you happy falls prey to this thing that we were talking about before, which is social comparison, right? You know, if I asked you how much money do you need to be happy, that's going to depend if you're living among millionaires or people who are, you know, living rurally and close to limited means and things, right? Um, in fact, we know this. There's a, a funny study that surveyed people and asked, how much money would you need to be happy? And they did this with people who had different income levels. So you ask people who are currently earning $30,000 a year, you say, how much money do you need to be happy, these folks will say, well, if only I was earning $50,000 a year, I'd be happy, right? So in theory, all the $50,000 people, you know, we should be like happy, you know, doing really well. The, the researchers did one better. They, they surveyed people currently earning $100,000 a year and said, are you happy? These folks said, no, what they needed to be happy was $250,000 a year. You know, so if you're comparing these conditions, you realize two things. One is like, even if you get more money, you never like get to the limit. <laughs> like you never kind of hit happiness or thinking you have enough. Ah. But what's worse is as you get more money, the goal gets further off. You don't get closer to your goal. You actually get further away from it. And that's mm. kind of a puzzle. You know, it means that more money just isn't going to you know, allow us to reach our dreams in the way we think. Yeah, I mean, more money, more problems is what I like to say. I but, think, you um, know, 90s hip hop really did get it right in, in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> they taught us everything we need to know about life. So, OK, so just to repeat what I'm hearing from you is there becomes a point in salary income where you're just going to want more no matter what. And you're starting to use these reference points like you were using before as sort of like benchmarks as to like where you need to get. So we're constantly just on this treadmill of trying to climb these ladders whether that's an income ladder. This is the same thing probably in like your career. Exactly. I don't know if you've done research around this. Does your title matter? Is that just a reference point? Totally. And what else? I think in all domains, right? You know, you can look at people in the looks domain, right? You know, how beautiful do you need to be? Do you need to lose more weight, you know, get more beauty products or things like that. But then you get to the next level and you just get used to this. And this is a, a phenomenon that researchers call hedonic adaptation. This idea that we just get used to stuff, you know. So if you're earning $50,000 a year and 
you double your salary, you know, for a couple weeks, that's awesome, right? Like you're buying new things, going out to new restaurants, you know, two months in, you're just kind of used to that new lifestyle, right? You know, same mm-hmm. thing when we buy something new, you know, say you buy a new, a new phone, right? You know, for a while I had a really crappy cell phone. So when I upgraded to the new iPhone, you know, that first week was like, oh my gosh, so fast, the camera's so good and so on. But two weeks in, like, I'm bored with it, right? It's just my phone. I, I've gotten used to all those cool new things. Mm. And this is just, you know, an annoying feature of the mind. We just get used to stuff. The, the good news, though, is that this works for bad things in our lives, too, right? You know, why is it that having a lower income doesn't make you unhappy? Well, you kind of get used to that, too. You know, you lose your job. At first, that feels awful. But then you kind of mm. get used to that new, you know, level of income. You know, you're cooking a different way and so on. It's okay, you know, and this is true even for really, really awful things that can happen to you. In in my podcast, The Happiness Lab, on an episode about hedonic adaptation, I interviewed a Marine who had been in a really awful accident when he was in war, and he'd been burned over three quarters of his body. He lost his looks. He lost his military career. He was horridly debilitated, but he describes that as one of the best things that's ever happened to him. And you're like, wait, what? And he's like, no, like, you know, I got used to all the bad stuff, and it came with a lot of good stuff, too. And this is the power of sort of hedonic adaptation. Even the worst of things, we can kind of get used to. We're more resilient than we think. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I love that. And I totally agree. I mean, I've known so many people who've had traumatizing events like this Marine or, you know, where they've become paraplegic or, you know, they've had brain trauma. They're some of the happiest, most joyful people I've ever met. And I think there's probably also this sort of resonance about like, they're alive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, totally. it's like people that have had near death experiences that survive are like, a, you know, new lease on life kind of thing. Is that part of your study too? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the researchers talk about this phenomenon of post traumatic growth. You know, many of us have heard of this term PTSD, post traumatic stress, right? But post traumatic growth is another thing that can come out of trauma. And it's growth in all the ways you're talking about, right? It's getting a new lease on life. It's having a deeper sense of meaning, right? You know, it's it's recognizing that you're resilient. You know, if you made it through that awful traumatic experience, you're not going to sweat the small stuff anymore. And there's also an element mm-hmm. of post-traumatic growth that comes from social connections. When you go through something terrible, you learn the people that matter in life. And so you can come out of it feeling more connected to people, feeling like you have a stronger community. And so for all of these reasons, you know, we don't think that, well, if I want to become happier, I need to have some sort of horrible trauma happen to me. I need to be burned in war, become a paraplegic or lose my job. But actually, there's evidence suggesting that those bad events, you know, can give us more meaning in life, surprisingly. Well, I mean, the average really bad breakup is probably a good example that's less terrifying. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Like, I mean, I've had, I think many people have had where you're just like, in the pits of despair, life is over. This is the person I thought I was going to marry. And then somehow you get through it. You also say this, you say that a lot of times happy people are the ones that prioritize time itself. 
So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this is another spot where I think we get it wrong. You know, we've talked about people being so obsessed with money, but I think that being obsessed with money and trying to work more hours and things comes at a cost. It comes at a cost to our time. And even though money doesn't make us happy, there's a lot of evidence that time really does. Um, There's been a lot of social science work recently on this concept of time affluence, this idea of like just feeling wealthy in terms of time, you know, just like, you know, if somebody called you and was like, hey, do you want to get together? You could just like, do it anytime because your calendar is so free. It's the opposite of what many of us experience, which is more like time famine, where we're literally starving for time, right? Especially uh, during a pandemic, by the way. Especially during a pandemic. And as especially a parent for, during the pandemic. I say parents <laughs> with kids, right? You know, like we, we just feel time famished all the time. But the evidence suggests that time famine is really bad for your well-being. In fact, one study showed yeah. that if you self-report being time famished, that's as big a hit on your well-being as if you self-report being unemployed. You know, we know unemployed. Employment will probably, you know, have a huge hit on your well-being, at least at first. Time famine does the same thing. And we don't necessarily adapt to time famine in the same way. And so one way that we can really all become happier is trying to give ourselves a little bit more free time. You know, not the easiest thing in the world, but a really powerful thing for boosting our well-being. How do you recommend people do that, especially if they are working parents during a pandemic? Yeah, well, one of the <laughs> one of the good things about time affluence, it didn't have to be this way, but just the way the mind is designed is that time affluence isn't about our objective sense of free time, like how much actual free time we have. It's a subjective sense that we have free time. And we've all kind of experienced this. You know, if you're at work and like you're about to go into a meeting and you walk in, like no one's there, you're like, wait, when's the meeting? It's like, oh, it got canceled. Didn't anybody put it you know, in your calendar? Oh, sorry. And you realize you have like a free hour that you didn't expect like you can yeah, feel like amazing. so time affluent you're like i'm gonna go you know learn a new language or like you know go on vacation like <laughs> totally just, in okay, an hour it's an hour right it's just an hour yeah. right and so that example shows us is like we don't need that much of an objective amount of time to feel subjectively Mm -hmm. like we have free time. So as a parent, you know, carve out those precious sacred five minutes where you're just breathing or doing something. Another thing we can do is just reframe the free time we have and also spend money to get more free time. You know, I'm guessing, you know, you and I are talking hopefully at the tail end of the pandemic, but in the middle of this tough time, I bet many people listening have gotten curbside pickup or takeout or something like that. We just do that because we just want a quick meal, but we forget that it's saving us some time. So the next time, you know, you order a burger and fries from the local place, when it shows up, think about the amount of time you saved, right? You didn't have to mm-hmm. go to the grocery store to get those potatoes and the buns or whatever. You didn't have to fry that stuff up. You didn't have to clean the pots and pans. You know, if you really listed it out, you probably saved like two hours, three hours. You know, it's just thinking that way, you're like, oh, I just bought that time back. You know, what can I do with that free time? And so kind of reframing the purchases you're making that give you back time um, can make you feel good too. But my my favorite kind of way to save time for busy people is to make good use of what researcher Ashley Willens calls your time confetti. You know, one incredibly strange statistic is that we in fact have more free time now than we ever have before, not necessarily during the pandemic, but in the last five years, you know, humans have kind of opened up much more free time for yourself. It doesn't feel like that, though, in part because our time is broken up in these really stupid ways. You know, that five minutes, you know, when the Zoom call ends earlier, the 10 minutes when your kid falls asleep early. It's like these little chunks of time. And and that's time Mm -hmm. confetti. You know, you could like throw it and it would go all over the place. But if you make good use of those little moments, they do really add up to something much bigger. 
And so researcher Ashley Willens recommends uh, putting together what she calls a time confetti wish list, not a like to do list, but a like with that five minutes, I will text a friend or I'll do a couple deep breaths, you know, or I'll do a quick meditation or maybe, you know, I'll squeeze in that 10 minute ab workout I've been talking about. Right. What can you do Mm. not to like check off another email, but to really do something that's going to improve your happiness? Um, If you can find ways to do that with your time confetti, you'll like be doing more things that make you feel happier, but you'll also also feel more time affluent. So it's like a huge win-win. Okay. I love the phrase time affluent. I'm going to use that in normal language from now on. I also love time confetti, let's be honest. And I think that, I think I do this actually without knowing it because I will have those minutes and I'm like, I could go check email right now. I could go look at the news. That feels scary. I could go look at social media. That feels like I'll get like down so instead, I think I'm just going to like browse Pinterest or something <laughs> stupid for five minutes. That's like a totally different context than my work or anything I need to be doing right now. But delights me, you know, and yeah. makes me happy. And then, so that's part of my time confetti. Uh, I love that. I think that's amazing. I, I also think that, by the way, you know, we know that women on average, especially mothers, are doing 16 hours plus work a week outside of their normal job doing housework childcare, et cetera. I have this deep passion to solve the childcare dilemma for Mm -hmm. women and parents everywhere, because it to me is the number one reason why adult women, mothers are more likely to be depressed or have any mental health crisis. They don't have free time. They're working. They're at home. They're taking care of their kids. They're doing the dishes. They're doing the bedtime. Like maybe you get an hour at the end of the day to like read or watch a movie, but then you're probably going to hang out with your spouse, (laughs) which is like lovely, but also it feels like that's not your free time. So just the last thing on free time I wanted to ask was like, what defines free time? What counts as free time? Like does going on a date night because your husband wants to go out count as free time or like social media? Is that really bad for free time? Because it's triggering all these other things inside of you. Like, what would you recommend we do? Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because this is, I think, another spot where we get, you know, what's going to make us happy really wrong. You know, there's lots of evidence that we don't do such a hot job when we like have some leisure free time. Right. You know, the, the things that tend to make us happy are are practices that really give us a sense of flow, this sort of feeling like you're in the zone and time is flying by the spots where we really feel connected. Right. Where we're talking to other people and really feeling like we're kind of getting, you know, that good, juicy, like social community vibe, right? But when we pick our leisure time, we're often so exhausted that we don't pick that stuff. You know, we tend to get a lot of flow and connection often at work, right? Because we're working on projects, but then you get home from work and then you're so exhausted that you like plop down and watch Netflix. And there's nothing like wrong with that per se. It can be relaxing, but it doesn't give you flow. And if you're like me after, you know, an hour of not even picking a specific thing to watch, but scrolling through the billion things, you're you're feeling like apathetic and gross and whatever. You know, same thing with things like social media. I feel like, you know, that can feel like a sort of fake flow. Um, What researcher Mihai Csikszent Mihai calls junk flow, right? Where it's like time has sped by, but you don't feel like good about that. You feel hypnotized Mm -hmm. and kind of nasty, you know? And so the key is that we need to pick leisure activities that, that are a little bit more challenging. You know, the reason work puts us in this sort of flow state is it's not like like full relaxation and passive and easy. Like it kind of has some challenges. And that's why, you know, learning a new skill, you know, often even things like playing video games and stuff like that, they give us a kind of better sense of flow because they're a little bit more challenging. And so 
the trick is that for good leisure, we need to kind of be a little less passive and a little bit more active, right? And that can be tricky when you've had a really long day. This is something I struggle with too. You know, my instinct is like plop down and, you know, watch Netflix. But I'm like, actually, if I got up and did a hard yoga class right now, you know, especially if I got up and did a hard yoga class and I texted a friend to do it with me over Zoom, <laughs> I'd feel so much better. But that startup cost can be really hard. Yeah, it's the analogy of like, actually working out gives you more energy. And so when you don't have energy, you're supposed to like go for a walk or a run. <laughs> exactly. It's so counterintuitive. So if you can just struggle a little bit to get some action going, whether it's like grabbing the paintbrush <laughs> or going into a yoga class, then you're saying we will feel ultimately happier. And I wanted to point out the thing that you said about social connections, because I did follow that research study that was done, what was it, over like 80 years time? I think Harvard did it about what do people at the end of life say was the most like meaningful, happiest part of their life or gave them the most meaning or happiness? And it was relationships, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, and yet again, this is a thing that because in our quest for money, we often put on hold, you know, to go after more hours a week. You know, if I asked you, you know, why haven't you seen your best friend recently? Or, you know, what's keeping you from taking that vacation that you really want to take? It's often, oh, well, stuff for work, right? Like I'm trying to go for that promotion or I'm trying to get extra hours, you know, so I could earn a little bit more money. But in practice, you know, what these like longstanding long-term studies show us is that we'd be better off if we were investing in our relationships. You know, the biggest regret of the dying is not like, oh, I wish I put in more hours at work. It's, I wish I spent more time with my spouse. I wish I spent time getting to know my kids. I wish I spent time, you know, seeing my friends before it was too late, pursuing hobbies that I just really love, right? What we miss out on is the connection and the active leisure, you know, not the work stuff. And how does that change in this digital era we're in uh, when maybe we can't have so much real face-to-face -face connection? Does a Zoom chat with my parents give me as much dopamine in my yeah. brain as like seeing them face to face? Yeah, well, not as much as you might guess, right? You know, you and I are talking, you know, now and it's fun. I bet we'd be more fun if we were in a studio together and we could see each other. The good news is that we can get a lot out of talking with other people in real time, right? You know, you and I are talking now over Zoom and, you know, there's a little audio glitchiness that our brain picks up on. But for the most part, you say something, I react to you, I see your facial expressions, you see my facial expressions and so on. That's pretty good. Where social connection breaks down is when we're not even doing it in real time. You know, I'm just texting a friend to see what's up. And, you know, 10 minutes later, she texts me. And then like two seconds later, I text her or whatever. Like that's not like normal primate evolved conversation, right? That just kind of feels really different. And even worse is the kind of thing we often assume is connection, but is more like, you know, the nutrisweet of social connection, which is like liking things on social media or reading people's posts and just kind of scrolling through our friends' tweets. Like those things, I think we get the sense of like, oh, I'm hearing what's going on in people's lives, but we don't get the same sort of psychological benefit from it. If anything, I think we're getting a psychological hit because those kinds of social media posts often lead to things like social comparison, that kind of feeling of junk flow where you're hypnotized by your screen for hours on end. We just need to connect kind of synchronously in real time. And the phone is really powerful. You know, the, the phone is doing a better job of the audio delay than even something like Zoom or FaceTime. And it doesn't have the extra added, you know, constraint of often with Zoom or FaceTime, you're watching yourself because it gives you that feature of yeah. like, oh, you know, check your hair and things like that. And that can cause 
cause a lot of cognitive load because in a normal conversation, if you and I were chatting with each other in a studio, I wouldn't be looking at myself at the same time. I wouldn't be right. thinking like, oh, why does my hair look like that? Or like, you know, like maybe I should sit yeah. like this in a slightly different way. And so that extra kind of self-presentation problem can be pretty exhausting in real time. Right. Pro tip uh, for anyone that uses Zoom, hide self-view. Click on the three dots <laughs> in the upper right corner. I'm doing that now. Hide so if I, my hair is a mess, like, I don't know. So it don't doesn't tell me. matter. It's fine. It looks great. And you don't need even need to, you know, reference what your hair looks against mine because <laughs> I know that'll lower your happiness load. Um, no, I think that's so true. What are the findings you have with these college students at Yale that you teach? Like, have you seen people make huge transformations and what are they doing if so? Yeah, yeah. Well, we one of the sad things about the way the class played out on campus the first time I taught it, which is that, you know, I thought 30 students or so were going to show up and, you know, two orders of magnitude more showed up like a quarter of the whole campus was that we kind of didn't get our act together to do a real research study. You know, the, the way I would answer that question with like my scientist hat on is like I would have, you know, an approved study with a pre and post design and blah, blah, blah. And we just like simply did not get our act together to do it. We were like busy finding classrooms and all these things, right? But I have been able to test the efficacy of some of these practices in a different version of the class. We've actually moved to a version of the class that anyone can take online for free. It's on Coursera.org called The Science of Wellbeing. And there we really are using a more rigorous approach to test, okay, if you take this whole class and you follow these practices, do you get happier afterwards? And what we're finding is that on average, if you take like a, say, a 10-point happiness measure, you know, on average, how are you feeling on a scale of one to 10, people will self-report going up about a whole point to a point and a half on that happiness scale. So it's like, you know, if you're miserable and you come into the class or you, you all of a sudden, you know, like happy-go-lucky forever, no, but bumping up a whole point, you know, one out of 10 points is actually pretty big and pretty significant. And so a lot of people self-report that the class has really changed their lives. They've come out of depression. I have some learners who self-report being suicidal when they started the class and now they're feeling better. And so I think these practices really can have a huge effect. And what are the things that you would say to anybody, your student or anyone listening right now, let's say they're feeling particularly depressed or unhappy right now, is there anything like more instantaneous they can do to regain emotional balance and arrive at happiness? I would ask first, like, you know, how bad are you doing? Because there's a difference between like, I'm having a really bad day and I'm feeling a little depressed or I'm feeling a little anxious versus I'm in the middle of an acute panic attack right now. You know, the, the things you do for these acute situations are just very different. And the analogy I use is just with the body. You know, if you go into your doctor's office, you say, hey, doctor, I'm, you know, experiencing high blood pressure. What should I do? Your doctor might say like, hey, well, hop on the treadmill, you know, for a half hour a day or something that'll get better. But if you walked into your doctor's office and you say, I'm having an acute heart attack, like I'm in cardiac arrest right now, your doctor wouldn't say, oh, hop on the treadmill. You'd, you'd need a different kind of prescription. You need a different kind of treatment at that point. And the same is true for our mental health. If you're in really acute psychological distress, these types of practices might might help you as preventative strategies. So you wouldn't get there, but they're not the thing to turn to at that point. But if you're saying, I'm just not flourishing as much as I could be, right? Like I'm not feeling as time affluent as I could be. You know, I feel like there are things I could do to feel better. 
then the strategies I would turn to are pretty straightforward. They start with social connection. Every available study of happy people suggests that happy people are more social and that some of the best ways to engage in self-care are to think about other people. You know, people who donate their money and their time to other people, they're happier than people who spend money and time on themselves. You know, shocking. It's not what our intuition is, but it's what the data show. Another quick tip would be trying to change your mindset. You know, we think that the right move if we're having a bad day is to gripe about it with a friend and complain. You know, I always have this one friend who, like, when she comes over for a glass of wine, it's like, let me lay out all the terrible things that are happening in my life right now. But it turns out that people who do that aren't as happy as the people who would meet that friend for a glass of wine and say, let me tell you all the blessings in my life right now. Like, let me tell you all the things I'm grateful for. And so this attitude of gratitude can really be quite helpful. And an attitude of presence. You know, we often rush through our lives in this sort of frantic multitasking sense. And that means that we're not just noticing all the delights, all the good things out there, or just kind of being mindful in our own bodies. So developing this attitude of presence is a really huge thing for our well-being. And then finally, I often kind of relate to just thinking about all the specific healthy habits. You know, the things we know are good for our physical health, but we forget are good for mental health. You know, we talked about eating before, but even things like sleep and getting in some exercise. You know, there's evidence that a half hour of cardio a day is as effective at reducing symptoms of depression as like taking, you know, one of the leading anti-depression medications. So, you know, psychiatrists mm -hmm. could just be prescribing exercise and the study suggests, you know, that might be just as effective. So yes. those are the, totally. that's the list. That's, you know, some of the basics okay. of how you get back those to feeling like, better. Yeah, I, I, I felt like those were good buckets. I think the one I struggle with most is presence because I'm that person who's just like the planner. Anytime I get like a down moment, I'm like, what dates are we going to travel for Christmas? And we're, how we need to book the Airbnb? And you're just, I'm just like, 2022, my yeah. mind is like off somewhere in the future. And being a mom and a CEO and all the things doesn't help. But I'm really working on, I've been working on that for a while. And also gratitude, which is what you mentioned, which I never knew until I interviewed a different neuroscientist on this podcast uh, alongside Bill Nye a few months ago, that literally like a gratitude journal creates dopamine inside your brain because not only are you, you know, thinking about the things that you're grateful for, but the act of writing it down somehow creates like a cognitive relation to you in terms of your memory. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, one of the things is that, you know, we get kind of this wonderful, joyful hit from things we're grateful for, not just when we experience them, but when we re-experience them. You know, I think one of the best things about having a gratitude journal is you can go back, right? You know, you flip through a month ago, you're like, oh, I remember when that happened. That was awesome. Or yeah, that bird I saw, it was so pretty or whatever, right? So when you write them down, you can kind of re-experience them anew. And we experience those things as just as joyful. And actual writing, not like text on your phone. Well, the good thing is that, you know, it, it's really just about helping your memory along. And so I know people who okay. like literally scribble in a physical gratitude journal. There's lots of gratitude apps you can use. I have friends who just take pictures of the things they're grateful for and store those in a special folder on their phone. You know, so they're like visual things that remind them of things they're grateful for. Mostly you're just trying to help your memory out so that your brain, which is normally just going to go to all these negative things over and over again. That's our natural tendency. You know, you're kind of training your brain to find the good stuff, too. Mm -hmm. And the last thing on this note is like, uh, you know, let's say that you are working in a job you hate. Ninety five percent of people right now state that they have burnout or they want to quit their job. It's like I heard someone recently call this the great resignation because like all of these people are quitting 
Do you think that's the right move right now to, you know, if you're unhappy, quit your job and like find the next thing? Seems like it would support some of your research. Like they're not going to be less happy if they have, you know, a decent level of lower income or if they can live on a lower income for a while. And then they're going to find something that's more meaningful to them. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah. You think that we're just also like so ingrained in this crazy world we're in right now that we're hating every like our job. We hate everything <laughs> and we should actually stick with our job. Well, it's again, I think it depends a lot on your job. You know, there are people who just have like traumatic, you know, abusive bosses, just like not a good working situation. If that's your situation, then yeah, definitely changing it will be better. But if you're just kind of like, oh, you know, my job doesn't give me as much joy as it used to, that might just be normal hedonic adaptation, which you get for jobs and relationships and salaries and all this other stuff. And that suggests that you, what you might need is a little bit of a refresh for your job. And one way to do that that I talk a lot about on my podcast is through this process called job crafting, where you really just take some time to think about what you really value. You know, what are the kinds of strengths that when you engage in them, it really fires you up. You kind of feel whole, you feel meaning. And think about ways you can infuse your job with a little bit more of those. And you might at first glance think, well, I have a job where I can't, you know, bring any values in. But the research suggests like probably most jobs you can do this. One of my favorite studies on this comes from the uh, Yale School of Management professor, Amy Resnensky. And she does this study with a group of hospital janitorial staff members, right? You know, these are people who are like cleaning up people's vomit, taking away dirty linens. Like it's not like a job that you think of as like a calling where you can like richly build meaning into it. But what she finds is that a subset of those janitorial workers really do think of their job as a calling. They love their job, get tremendous joy from it. And the reason is that even though they're doing their kind of normal thing that's in their job description, they're building in this other thing, this other stuff too. You know, one thing one of her staff members talked about is that, you know, the thing that gives them real joy is connecting with the people. They go in to, you know, clean the vomit in a hospital ward and they'll joke around with this patient who's feeling really embarrassed and say, you know, because you threw up means I got a job. Like I'm paying my bills. Like, thank you so much. Right. And people are laughing. They're feeling better. Right. That Their job they think of as social connection, not cleaning up the vomit. Another janitorial staff member mentioned a story where she was working on a coma patient ward, you know, something that must be so awful. But what she did every day was to just ever so subtly move the plants and the paintings on the wall. And she thought of that as a way that she was, you know, creating some new changes that might like spark some life in these patients, right? You know, no one asked her to do that, but she was just thinking that this was a way that she could kind of creatively engage with her job. And so that's this process of job crafting, right? You know, if your strengths and your values are about bravery or learning or social connection or empathy or creativity, right? How can you do more of that in your job? And again, if these janitorial staff members are doing that, you probably can find ways to do that in your job too. Yeah, for sure. I actually remember that study. I love it so much. I think it's so beautiful. All right, uh, Dr. Santos, we want to do a quick lightning round before we wrap up. If you're game, just spew out the first thing that comes to your mind after I ask you each of the following questions. Number one, what is the most interesting thing you've ever learned in your research? most interesting thing I've ever learned in my research is just how much the mind lies to us, like how much we don't like seek out the stuff we're really going to like. Frustrating, but kind of cool. That's where the gut comes along, right? That's where you got to have the mind-body connection. All right. What do you do, the first thing you do when you want to feel happier? Uh, Definitely get some yoga in, ideally with a good friend. Do you always feel in charge of your emotions? Um, Like, basically never. <laughs> um, but I've used, <laughs> but I always feel in charge of the second step of my emotions, which is how I react to them. Yes. 
Do you have a favorite motivational song or mantra? One of my favorite mantras is this idea that you should react to all that comes to you with gratitude because that is the path to happiness. Ah, Love it. And lastly, what is a silly purchase you made that you thought would make you happier? A silly purchase I made that I thought would make me happier and is in fact made me much happier um, is a crazy bird feeder that goes into your house. It's like this little plexiglass semicircle. So birds, rather than being outside your window, like kind of hop into your window, like about like a half a foot. And that means like cardinals come in and like eat the bird seed and I can see them really closely. And it's made me so happy because it gives me so much flow to see these like cute little birds coming in to eat some food. (laughs) I love that. All right. Well, um, we also like to leave our listeners with a little project or assignment every week. And I mean, you're like a professor. So I figured you might have a good assignment for all of us. What is one thing we should try this week? I think this week you should write down your time confetti wish list. Like right now, the next time I have a free five to 10 minutes, here's what I'm going to do. Keep it handy on your phone so you'll see it. And it always has to be things that aren't going to be work things or they're not going to be like projects to tick off your list. They're going to be things that make you feel good. Yes. Time confetti, everybody. Time confetti. I love it. Um, Okay. Dr. Lori Santos, her podcast is The Happiness Lab. And tell us a little bit about that and what we can expect if we download it. Yeah. So it's a whole podcast, you know, talking to people's stories about how they're navigating their own issues of finding happiness. Um, There's lots of stories with scientists who have the research to back this stuff up and people just living their lives. Um, You'll get all the same tips that my Yale students get in a fun podcast form. Guys, it's time to go back to school. And this time you can go to Yale. (laughs) I didn't go to Yale, but I would have loved to. Um, Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for your your knowledge, um, all your advice. I hope that we all get a little bit happier. We get some time confetti in our lives, time affluence in our lives, and try all the things that we know will actually make us happy. Um, If you guys liked this show, please leave us a virtual high five by rating and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. See you guys next week. Thanks for listening to Teach Me Something New, a production of iHeartRadio and Brit & Co. I'm your host, Brit Morin. Find more information about each episode at Brit.co slash listen. You can also find me on social media. I'm at Brit or follow us at Brit & Co. Teach Me Something New is executive produced by Ali Ives and Ali Perry with additional production and sound design by Mark Lemmerjazy and Aaron Peterson. 